1 Peter 1.10. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is, that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the word of the living God. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. Thank you for standing. We're doing a series going through First Peter, and it's He Will Testify of Me. And the subtitle of this message where, we're, uh, where we just read from is Rest Your Hope Fully. Rest Your Hope Fully. Uh, that word hope's come up several times this morning. That word hope is a great word. It's a great word, especially when you use it in the context of a culture in which there seems to be little or none of it. And as we go forward, uh, there's a spirit of hopelessness in our society, if you sense it. Uh, that's accompanied by when you have wicked rulership and wicked rule. If you have uh, wicked, wicked leadership, then you'll have a hopeless nation. And we have both. But we as the church should be uni uniquely different because we have a fixed hope. We have a living hope, as a matter of fact. As a matter of fact, in the first couple of verses... Peter reminds us of that when he shares that we have a living hope because of Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. Look back at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We talked about this time and again. We shared it time and again. We're coming up on Easter. And it is very unfortunate and tragic and it needs to be changed that the church of the living God when she meets would wait until Easter to celebrate in a unique way the resurrection of our Lord every single Sunday is Easter Sunday welcome to Easter Sunday 2012 I mean we're the mere fact that we meet on Sunday is a reflection of the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead we serve a living Savior he overcame so that we would never be overcome hallelujah to his name and therefore, we have a living hope. But let's look at this. I want to look at it for just a second from this perspective. We, we, we had an outline last week that we used. We were looking at the revelation of the glories of our redemption. We were looking at, at, at the rejoicing that, that does come as a result of that revelation. We were looking at the redemptive nature of the suffering that's guaranteed in the Christian life. Not unexpected, but guaranteed and promised. We looked at the richness of the relationship that sustains us in the middle of suffering. And we took a real quick look at the roots of our faith. I want, to, I want us to, to develop that a little bit more this morning because that's what the text does. Look what it says here. Of this salvation, the salvation that you and I enjoy, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. This is all going to come to fruition. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was working in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. 
You don't need the old, te the New Testament to pr preach the gospel because the Old Testament preaches the gospel. But in the Old Testament are time and again are passages that are a precursor to and prophesy of the suffering of Jesus Christ to purchase our redemption and his coming kingdom. They're all over the place. The most prominent one we think of is Isaiah chapter 53. It talks about his suffering there, but it's all over the Old Testament. The Jewish leadership of the time wrote those off as allegory because they could not understand how the scriptures could prophesy a coming king and yet at the same time talk of his terrible suffering. And they were thinking, how can you reconcile that too? How could he be a king, a promised king, and yet how could it be that this suffering would, would, would come to him? How could the suffering be his lot? So they wrote it off as allegory and they took the king part and embraced it. And they took the suffering part and said that must be allegory. It must be something like this. Because he's going to be a great leader and because he is going to have an eternal kingdom, he must be the kind of leader who would take others' needs and put them above his own. And that's what the suffering meant. They didn't know it meant literal suffering. It meant literal suffering. kind of sounds familiar with the way we as Christians act sometimes. We love the king part and the coming kingdom part. But sometimes we write off the suffering part as allegory. There are people pitching the gospel right now. Charlatans who are lining their pocket with that kind of theology. Oh, you're a king. You're a king. Best life now. You're going to reign. It's all going to work out great. And if there's suffering in your life, it must be sin. The only problem with that is the Bible. They love the king part, but have nothing or little or nothing to do with the suffering part. This is illustrated the roots of our faith, the roots of our faith, the very core of our faith is the suffering of Jesus Christ. If Jesus doesn't go to the cross, no one gets out of their sin. If Jesus doesn't go to the cross, there's no redemption for anybody. If Jesus doesn't go to the cross, it's hell for everyone. The enemy did not have an interest in helping Jesus to get to the cross. The enemy's interest lied in keeping him from it. He was trying to keep it from happening because he had enough revelation to know if he gets up on that cross, that's got to be the only way that he could clean up a motley crew like this. That's evidence in the fact that when Peter spoke up and said, Lord, after the Lord had prophesied of his coming suffering, it was just around the corner, and Peter said, this will never be. This won't happen to you. And he turned around to him and said, get thee behind me. He said, you're under the sway of the enemy. I came to die. I was born crucified. I came to die. The other morning, Andrew and I got up early. We were getting ready to come. And I said, Andrew, do we have, um, don't we have an Old South Uncle Remus video somewhere? And it was real early in the morning. I said, cue it up. Let me and you look at it. I want to look at it because there's a scriptural principle. He said, you want to preach on Br'er Rabbit this morning? I said, no, but there's something I want to lift from this, and I haven't heard this story so long. It's been so long since I heard this story, I want to see it again. So we just snipped that little part. If there are bad parts in the Song of the South video, I'm not aware of them, and I'm not endorsing it in any way, okay? But, but, uh, in that part where Br'er Rabbit is floating down the patch, I mean, floating down the, uh, the lane, and the fox is kind of conniving and scheming, about how he's going to lay hands on him and kill him and eat him. And he's been evading him. And, of course, he's outsmarted the fox every time. And the rabbit's just kind of merrily going on his way. And he's sitting there talking to the brer bear. I don't know why they're all brer. 
But Br'er Bear, and they're talking to Br'er Fox, and they're talking about how they're going to get him. And what he does is, is he gives, comes up with this tar baby thing. He says, okay, if we'll put together this tar baby and dress him up and put him right beside him, he'll be intrigued by him. He'll stop. He'll put a hand on him when he doesn't speak to him because he's a big mouth. And when he does, he's going to stick. And then he'll put the other hand on him to try to shake him to life, and he'll get stuck, and he'll get here, and we'll grab him. Well, it works. The rabbit goes merrily along his way. He sees the tar baby and says, why don't you speak to me? And he keeps going, and finally he gets stuck to him, and the fox goes over and grabs him. I've got him. I've got him. I've got him. And now he's strategizing about what he's going to do and how he's going to kill him and eat him. And the bear says, I'm going to take this stick and knock his head clean off. And he keeps saying that over and over again. And he said, no, 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 that's too quick. That's too quick. It's not, it's not enough. It doesn't excite me to do that. Let's come up with something else. And so the rabbit looks over. Br'er Rabbit looks over and sees the briar patch over just in the distance. And he gets an idea. He says, whatever you do to me, you can hit me with that bat. You can throw me and boil me in stew. You can do whatever you want me to do to me, but do not, please, whatever you do, don't throw me in that briar patch. And the fox is still walking around with him in, with his you know, hand, his head in his hand, throat. And Trevor, the fox, the, the bear rabbit says that enough to the point where he thinks it's his idea. And he goes, I know what I'll do. I'll throw him in the briar patch. And, of course, that was fed to him by the rabbit. So what does he do? He grabs him and he hurls him into the briar patch. And on the video, it's so cool. When he gets in there, he's laying down and he's, <laughs> he's going, ah, 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 like that, faking that he's in trouble. When in reality, he's sitting there with his hands like that, just it, full of joy that he had been released and he had manipulated the fox to throw him into the place where he was born. He said, and so then he shows him going up on this little stone thing, this little cliff, and he's diving like an Olympic diver into the briar patch, just swimming through it and just thriving in the briar patch because this is where he was born. And he looks up at the fox and he says, Bear Fox, I outfoxed you. I was born in the briar patch. It's there I thrive. Let me tell you this. Christianity was born in the briar patch. Christianity was born, the rot that we were hewn out of was the suffering of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And every time the world gets this idea or this notion that, they, that the world can level at us any kind of persecution or anything to stamp the church out, to boil us in stew, it turns the tide on the enemy's plans and causes the church not to retract but to grow. It's going to become increasingly difficult to embrace and be open about Christian faith in this country. That is on its way. It's going to become increasingly difficult in this country to be honest and faithful to the truth of God's Word. And it's going to be increasingly seductive to compromise the truth we know in order to get us out of the difficulty that's coming. And we better understand the DNA of Christian life and we need to understand saints that suffering in the life of a Christian and persecution in the life of a Christian is not unusual. It's prophesied. It's predicted. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, like we talked about last week, it says that those who would live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, we talked about last week 
that the Christian life doesn't protect us from suffering. As a matter of fact, it ensures it. It doesn't even protect us from death for our faith. But I'll tell you what it does do. It eternally protects us from defeat. It eternally protects us from defeat. Because the moment that Jesus Christ stepped out of the grave and conquered the sin, the penalty of our sin, the power it has to rule over us by His resurrected life, and the presence of sin by His coming kingdom and the hope that that ensures for the believer, we are victors and we're more than conquerors. Praise His holy name. So the rod that we were hewn out of was not a crown. The rod that we were hewn out of is a cross. It's been well said before that many Christians have Jesus still on the cross and us on the throne and we need to swap places. He's now on the throne and now, not redemptively, but because of redemption, we're to get on the cross. That's the only way to be sober-minded and victorious in this Christian age. And so every time the enemy has a strategy that he's going to wipe out the church or do something nasty to the church and somehow another persecute it and, and snuff out its existence and he hurls us in this world system in the spirit of the age into the briar patch, he's only placing us in the place where our Savior willingly laid down his life on Calvary. He only gets us back to our roots because before there's ever a resurrection, there is a cross. But praise God, there's both hallelujah to his holy name. What is, that, what is to be our response? They looked into that resurrection, and there's nothing allegorical about it. The Bible is literal. We believe, we believe the Bible literally. The Bible is not a book of allegory. The Bible is a book of literal truth. So we embrace a suffering Savior. He's a suffering Savior, and He's Lord. He's both, because that's what our redemption and our sin cost Him when it was placed on Him. So, so they look in the glories that would follow through his, his sacrifice, God's sacrifice of his son on the cross. And it's been revealed to us, and that's our epicenter, that's our ground, that's our reason for rejoicing because of the love and the grace and the mercy that we find there. And then our response in 13, I just want to take a couple of minutes to talk about it, is to gird up the loins of our mind, be sober-minded, and rest our hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Joyful, patient endurance through present suffering is realized through the position, possession of a persistent eternal perspective, a hope of future glory. Let's look at that word hope for just a minute. That's not the same word that you and I normally think of as the word hope. We say things like that many times based on what may or may not happen. Well, gee, I hope it works out. We try. I did well. I tried the best I could do on the test. And I just hope, against all hope, that it was enough to secure an A. But I'm not sure. There might be a B coming. I don't know. I just know I did the best. Or gee, you know, I've, I've, I applied for the job. And I'm hoping against all hope that it might be me they select among ten candidates. Or gee... Uh, I, 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 you know, I hope the car, this is, this brings it home to me, I hope the car lasts for 24,000 miles so we don't have a payment and that maybe the brakes don't give out. I sure do hope that doesn't happen, but it may happen. It may just happen. It may just leave us stranded. It may happen, but it's not a hope that I'm sure of. That's not this word. This word is confidence in assured outcome. That's what that word means. 
That word means, gee, I, it may go this way or it may go the opposite of what I'm hoping for. No, that's not the same word. The word there is, it will go this way. That Jesus Christ is going to come down the next time on this earth, step on Mount Olivet, walk through the eastern gate, and sit on the throne of David, and we will rule and reign with Him forever. It is a fixed, confident, assurance hope. It is to say, I'm hoping in what I know is going to happen. And that hope purifies us for holy living and it encourages us in the middle of difficulty now. But look at this word sober. Let's, let's look at this word sober for just a minute. In Mark 15.32, I mean, excuse me, in Mark 15.23, let's go look at it for just a second. Go look at Mark 15. Verse 23. I'm going to look at something that, that uh, uh, in, in, in this uh, account of Jesus' uh, trip to the cross that has everything to do with being sober-minded. Let's look at it. Mark 15, 23. It says... Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. That concoction there was often given to crucifixion victims as a narcotic. That was given to him and offered to him not to make his trip to the cross easier, but to make his executioners um, carry out their duty with greater ease. For instance... Don't you suspect that there's a greater bit of scrambling that goes on when somebody's nailed to a cross? I mean, you've got nothing to lose. You're going to hit whoever you can hit, and you're going, to, you're, going to do, you're going to scramble around, and you're going to do everything you can to resist having your hand saddled to a cross and your feet in such a way where they, that you're still enough for them to take those spikes and drive them into your hand and feet. So in order to help them and the executioners to help them make their job easier, to keep them from wiggling and scrambling so much, they would give them a narcotic, in effect, to numb their senses, not to make the pain easier to take, but to make the job of the executioner easier so that they could get them on the cross easier and Jesus refused to take it. Let me tell you what's at stake here. That's a big sentence right there. Because let me tell you what's at stake. Had he taken that, had he taken that, he, he took it and he tasted it in one rendering and he said he spit it out and he refused it because he realized what it was. Had he taken that, it would have marred and given the enemy a basis to uh, accuse us that our redemptive work was not pure and perfect. That Jesus Christ and his redemptive work on us on behalf of the cross was not complete and not perfect. He didn't lay down on the cross. Your Bible says, and he said himself, you don't take my life, I give it. I lay it down. But no, not so. They was, he was drunk when he was on the cross. He was not under the control of the Holy Spirit. He was under the influence. 
And because he was under the influence, you could have no confidence that he willingly laid down is this lamb business. What about this lamb business being prophesied? What about these lambs in the tabernacle and all that shenanigans? No, away with those notions. He didn't go as a lamb. He went resistant and he fought it to with the nail. So much so that he took a drink of alcohol before he got there, numbed his senses, and I was the one that put him there. And his redemptive work on your behalf means nothing. It would have tainted the pure testimony of Jesus' work on the cross to reach, redeem, and take away mine and your sin. You know why? Because he was full of and controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's why our society labels drunk driving as driving under the influence. That's a great label for it. Because anything that influences you and I, other than the Holy Spirit, sin. And man, you could be drunk on a bunch of different things. Just a couple of them for your consideration. You could be drunk on the approval of other people. That was Paul's signature sin as a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee on steroids. He excelled above all the other Pharisees of his day. He was a gifted Pharisee. He was skilled at his craft. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 7 that his motivation for doing it, and it bears out with Jesus and his indictment of the Pharisees throughout the Gospels, you brood of vipers, you do this to court the favor of men and line your sorry pockets. I know what you're about. And the Apostle Paul had a jaded ego, and it was messed up. And he wanted to affirm himself. And the way he said, I can affirm myself is, I'm going to excel at Phariseeism, so I'm going to look to. He coveted the favor of men. So much so that he would kill Christians in Christ in the name of God. Because he so wanted the favor of men. The Bible says in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul said, I would have not known covetousness if the law had not said, Thou shalt not covet. What he was saying was, that's my signature issue right there. For you it might be something else. For the Apostle Paul, it was the approval of other people. It's amazing, Ted, the work of the Holy Spirit that was done in that man because he was so full of Jesus and his ministry that he completely abandoned the notion of the approval of other people and he preached to his peril everywhere he went and could not care less about the approval of men. The approval of men and to persuade men and to be a bondservant of Christ are mutually exclusive. Either you're a bondservant of Christ and you don't care what men think or if you care what men think, you're no longer a bondservant of Christ. Galatians chapter 1. Some of us are influenced and we're under the influence of our past. Can I say this to you? Just be careful about this and write, if you write emails, just do it to me directly. Don't talk about anybody about this except me. If you've got a beef with me about this. But I can tell you this, in looking at First and Second Peter and studying them over and over and over again, I do not see preparation for the end times as a frenzied fervored activity exercise where God says, you've got to go out and do everything tomorrow. Go! I see First and Timothy, First and Second Peter in preparation for the fact that God's going to torch this place soon as faithfulness in the middle of your daily living. But some people feel compelled to, out of the flesh, serve and do and fix and gum to make up for past mistakes. Friends, can I say this, beloved? That is an indictment on the effectiveness and the completeness of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on your behalf. What you're saying is it didn't cover it all. That's heresy. It did cover it all. 
we serve the Lord, not to gain His favor. We serve the Lord because we have His favor. Some of us, some of us are influenced by our fears. Those two are related. Some past mistakes are because we fear of repeating those past mistakes or we fear that because of the past mistakes, the consequences are surely coming and you're waiting for the shoe to drop any minute. And you see God as a God up in heaven who just delights in making people's lives miserable. And He just can't wait to get you back for whatever you've done. I don't mean that the principle of reaping and sowing doesn't operate. But what I'm saying is, is God would only allow whatever He allows and permits and ordains in your life in order to conform you into the image of His Son. And whatever that means, it's worth it. But we let our fears drive us. We let fear of the society drive us. We let fear of every kind of, every kind of an imaginable thing that we can think of. We let our fears influence us. And we're under the influence of fear. And we're no longer sober-minded. And when you're, so, when you're not sober-minded, you can't see God. You can't identify His activity. And you certainly can't connect with Him. Fears will cause you to drop your guard. Fears will leave you vulnerable. If you fear God, you'll fear nothing else. If you don't fear God, you'll fear everything else. We need to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Our Savior was. Our Savior was. And I want you to look at a, draw a contrast between two men. And you, you and I are either one side of the cross of, of Jesus or the other in relation to these two men. But let's look at Matthew chapter 27. I'm, I'm sorry, Mark 15. Stay where you are. I'm sorry. Mark 15, let's look at verse 32. The end of verse 32. You know the story all too well. You've seen it. You see the cross and you see Jesus in the center and he's flanked by two people on either side of him. And we celebrate. It's one of the greatest conversion stories in the Bible as far as substantiating that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and not of works. There are a bunch of testimonies in the Bible that reflect it, but this one, oh man, it's right up at the top. You know the story. One of the thieves looks over at him, changes his mind, repentance, says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He'd already affirmed that Jesus was there, not dying for what Jesus had done wrong because he hadn't done anything wrong, but he was dying for what the thief had done wrong because he said that to the other thief. He said, why don't you hush? You and I are getting what we deserve. He owned up to his sin, and Jesus turned around to him and said, Today, I tell you the truth, today I'll be with you in paradise. Didn't have a time to go help an old lady across the street, go buy groceries to the poor, go into the temple and make a sacrifice, go pray toward Jerusalem. Do, he didn't have any time to do any of that. He just appealed to the mercy of God as a broken, repentant sinner, and guess what? He got it. Amen. Beautiful picture of salvation. One of the things, though, we need to focus on is, is that he was a reviler, too, when things first started. Look at it says, let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now. Let, let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Now look what it says at the end of the verse. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Both of them were reviling him. And one of them changed his mind. That's repentance. I was gifted by the Holy Spirit. But both of them were reviling him. We celebrated this and talked about this time and again, but listen to this and just think about this for a minute. The tense of the language that's used when Jesus spoke from the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do is a tense that indicates that he was repeating that over and over again. 
We've talked about that before. Wave after wave after wave of people will come mocking him, trying to uh, encourage him, attempt him to get down to the cross just like they did here to prove who he was. And he would say, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. One of the thieves saw that happen time and again. And it melted his heart. And the Holy Spirit showed this, 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 this criminal, who's now a saint in heaven, that Jesus was not there to pay for his own sin, but he was there to pay for the sins of the criminal. In other words, his mind changed not by watching how Jesus lived. His mind changed by watching how Jesus died. And friends, believers, that's true of you and I. People get a witness to the gospel when they watch not how we live, but they get a witness to the gospel when they watch how we die. When you express forgiveness to somebody that doesn't deserve it, that'll take Jesus. When you love somebody that doesn't love you in return, that's a death nail to your pride. When you and I give, well, maybe we don't even have it, our own self, when we give it out of faith, motivated by the Holy Spirit and His clear direction, that's another death nail in the trust that we have in ourselves, invested in our confidence and pride. When we extend a hand to somebody that's not extended back or appreciated, when we share the gospel when it costs us something, when we're reviled for the sake of Christ, when we are written off because of our faith and mocked because of our faith and the things that can happen for those who would live godly in Christ Jesus and you don't revile in return, you're just simply dying in front of them. And in your death, they get to see the life of Jesus because Jesus is like a, 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 a vortex. He, he's, uh, he's, he, his death for the believer draws us into it. Did you hear what it said in the, in the song a while ago? It bids me, it bids me come and die. That's what, that's what it does. That's a great lyric. That's a great lyric. It bids me come and die. Come and die, believer. Come and die. Come and die that I might what? Live. Come and die that I might live. I want to get rid of you so that I can, be I can replace you with me. And so the root of Christian faith, the rock we were hewn out of is the suffering of Jesus. And redemptively, that's over with. But in the life and witness of the church, it goes on. And if we resist that, we're resisting his activity and we're resisting the optimal opportunity for Jesus to shine forth in our lives for his glory. That's the rock we were hewn out of. We were born in the briar patch. We were born on Calvary's hill. The Bible says unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, but he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. A seed has to die before it can birth. There has to be a death before there's a resurrection. And we resist that with everything that we have. Let's don't resist it. And let's don't take, let's don't take the offerings of the world to numb our senses to the power of the cross. Let's don't, let's, don't, let's, don't, let's don't go kicking and screaming. Let's don't go with the influence of anyone or anything else except the Holy Spirit. 
Let's let those divine trips to Calvary occur. Let's follow Him there. Let's let Him empower us to go there. Let's let Him show us when it is there. Let's let Him do it in His time and in His way. There's a cross for you. It is uniquely designed for you. And it's accompanied by the manifold grace of God to lay down there. Not under the influence of anyone else except the Holy Spirit. Not in order to settle your fears, but because your fears have been settled. Not in order to earn favor with God, but because of Jesus you have favor with God. Not in order to go to heaven, but because you're celebrating the fact that you're already headed there. As a matter of fact, you're seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, even now. That's the incentive. Don't take the liquor of your past. Don't take the narcotic of the world. Draw from Christ, His resources, His Word. Go with a sober-minded, vigilant attitude. I know where I'm going. Listen, listen, listen. Cattle are driven. Sheep are led. The Christian life is not some driven resolve. It is a leadership. It's a, it's a relationship where we walk with Jesus and we can see what's on the horizon because He's already been there and He directs our steps. Hallelujah to His name. Years ago when I was serving at a previous church, uh, members, uh, we, were, we were sending out mission teams all over the place and we sent out a mission team uh, once to, uh, to Brazil, actually, Phil. And uh, I think it might have been before y'all came to the fellowship, but... We sent out a whole youth group uh, to Brazil. It must have been 60 of them. And um, one of them came back. One of the leaders came back, and he was in my office. And I said, man, Jeffrey, tell me all about it. And he sat down, and he was telling me all about it. Oh, Brother Lindsay, and he was giving me all the details and all that about what God did and how excited he was and how God moved and what have you. And he told me a, a, a story, Trevor, that I'll never forget. And he said, we went to a ranch, Dan, and we were, we were uh, some cattle ranch. I think there's a lot of that down there. And, uh, and we were watching them getting ready to, uh, to get a bull and harness him and get him ready to carry him off to be slaughtered. And he said it took six men to, to rope that bull and to, and to uh, finally get him under control and get him in one of those things where he's hemmed in so they could put him in the truck to carry him off to his demise. Apparently he'd seen other bulls go and not come back. Um, so... He said, you just wouldn't believe the fight that ensued when they, when they saddled that, that bull. He said, it was amazing. He said, he said, I really thought that several of those guys were going to be taken out. And then he said, I looked across the field, and they were about to do the same thing to a little lamb. And he said, all they did was take a little rope and put it around his neck and just walk beside him in this little guy, shrimp of a guy like, you know, no, no, with no strength like me, and he just scared him like that. And the little lamb walked right beside him and followed to the same place for his demise. And that's the contrast between the resistance that we pose to the cross that lay ahead of us and the obedience of the Lamb of God. God bless His holy name. Are you impressed with His Son? Because I tell you one thing, I sure am. And the fact that he would put up no resistance, the fact that he would look at Pilate and Pilate say some foolish thing like, don't you know that I have the power in my hand to spare your life or take it? And Jesus just seems to come out with it right there and say, okay, I've taken every remark you've made so far and I've, I've ignored it, but I'm going to take you up on that one. 
listen, Dad, you don't have any more power over me than what's been granted by my Father in heaven. Don't go to smelling yourself. He's in charge of this moment, not you. The very one who had the power to change it with the less of the bat of his eye, the most amazing strength, more so than the nuclear arsenal of every nation on earth who has nuclear bombs, is for Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the creator of it all, to decide to withhold his power to change that moment and to go as a lamb to reach and redeem you and I. Bless his holy name. Let me tell you something. You'll pose a resistance if you're drunk on anything. We need to quit. We need to quit drinking for the world. We got some drunks in church, and 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 listen. I'm asking the Lord. Hey, before you ever preach a sermon, it runs through you first. What am I drunk on, Lord? What is it that I'm taking from? If I'm taking the narcotic, am I taking the offering to numb the pain and make it easier? Listen, I'm not saying the Christian life is is um. Is that to be dreaded? I'm just being realistic about it because the Bible's realistic about it. And before you're ever going to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, you've got to die to yourself. Daily. And in so doing that, let's don't resist. Let's don't listen to the notions and the philosophies and the slogans of the world. Let's go to the Word of God and let that be the source from which we draw our strength. Let that be the confidence. Looking forward to the sure hope that we have, motivated by a sure hope of an assured outcome Friends, he's coming again. The wrath of God is coming, and Jesus is coming for his own. For the unrepentant, it's all judgment. For the repentant, it's all mercy. You decide which one do you want. Amen? And if you're one of his own, we got good news. For you, it's all mercy. Praise his holy name. Now, because of that, where does the cross lie? on your horizon. Maybe you're facing one right now. Or maybe you're just coming out of having dodged one. Because we can do that. And maybe you see the Christian life as just a frenzied of spent activity in order to make up for past mistakes. Oh, dear one, Jesus Christ took that. He set you free. And you can live free. He's not calling for frenzy. He's calling for faithfulness. Obey where you are. That's what impresses God. Be faithful where you are, and then he'll take you wherever he wants you to go. But wherever that death is that's been arranged for you, don't take the liquor of the world. Let him kill you. Let him slay you, and do it without resistance. Do it as the Lamb of God. You can't do that on your own strength. You got somebody that's aggravating you to death in your life that you cannot hardly stand to look at? Die. Die. Love them. Love them until it feels good. If you've got somebody in your past that you just cannot forgive or will not forgive, you're holding on, the Bible says that love does not keep a record of wrong. It doesn't keep a ledger. Do you see them every time? And every time you see them, the only thing that comes up is what they did to you? That means you're keeping a record of it. Die. Die, believer. Die. Don't get drunk with the liquor of the world that says protect your rights. After all, you deserve to be treated better. Really? 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 Is that really true? Is that really true? Hang on to your pride. Hang on to your right, to your future, for you to make the decisions. You don't have the right to make a decision about your future. Only God holds that right. But the blessing of it is and the grace of it is is whatever he has for your future is much better than you could ever plan on your own. If your fears are driving you and it keeps you from obeying God, renounce them. Die today. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Die 
today. Because three days after death, there is a resurrection. Somebody rejected you because of your Christian faith? Accept them. If somebody is, you're extending love to somebody and they don't extend it in return, mark that off. That's agape. That's called God's love. You can't do it, but he'll do it through you. We can do these things through Christ who strengthens us. But if you're drunk, you're going to resist and you're not going to see the cross. It's going to be right in front of your face and you're going to miss it. You're going to miss the God moments. Let's sober up. Let's sober up. Let's be, let's be sober-minded Christians fed by the Word of God and empowered by the Spirit of God and renounce every thought that doesn't come from the mind of God. Amen? That's possible. That's inevitable for a believer. Let's go there. That's the center of Christian faith. You were born not in the briar patch. You were born on a trash heap outside the streets of Jerusalem called Calvary. That's where you were born. Amen?